You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. All right. Good morning, Redeemer. Can y'all hear me? Okay. Awesome. All right. My name is Treasure. I, along with my husband, lead a group on Wednesdays. We hold it at the Adamses. I don't know how to say that plurally. Um, But this morning, I'm going to be reading with y'all in Galatians 3. Okay, so I'll give you time to get there. Galatians 3, and it'll be 1 through 14. All right. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Thank you, Treasure. Um, also, happy birthday, Treasure. I didn't know that till this morning, but she is 29 today, so this is the last year of her youth. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, it's good to be with you. My name's Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Odessa. If you're a guest, thank you so much for being here. If you'd take a minute... There's a connect card under your chair. You can fill that out, um, get that back to us. So we would love an opportunity to connect with you, to serve you, to see how we could get you plugged into the life of the body. Um, And if you're on your phone or your tablet, we use the ESV. And we also have an app that has been updated to make it a little more user-friendly. And there's a Bible on that app along with some sermon notes. So you can go into the App Store, search Redeemer Odessa, what is it called if you're an Android user? Whatever that place is, you can get an app there. So, Google, whatever. <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, I know we're small, and I know a lot of you very well because of that. So I think a lot of you will be able to relate to what I'm about to what I'm about to share. Um, I grew up in this church in Hobbs, New Mexico, where my grandparents were on the core team, the that 
started this church in 1958. So that church is now 65 years old, and they've gone through various highs and lows, various seasons of being super healthy and then being really unhealthy. Thankfully, they're on a good trajectory now. Um, But if you're my age or about my age, um, the church climate in the 90s and the 2000s, or the aughts as I like to call the early 2000s, went through a little bit of an awkward phase. Um, That's also about the time that I got saved, and I use that language, that churchy language, very uh, intentionally, uh, because that's what the church said, like, you got to get saved. Uh, I do believe, however, that the Lord called me into salvation when I was eight, but the church that I was attending just kind of turned me loose, like, here you go, eight-year-old, you say you believe in Jesus, let's baptize you, good luck. Um, they did that with us, they, they kind of turned my parents loose, a bunch of my friends were also, you know, getting saved and, and getting baptized, and the church was just turning us loose, like letting us kind of figuring out following Jesus on our own. Anybody else relate to that? Um, it was kind of like this mentality of, hey, uh, you walked down the aisle and prayed a prayer with, with the pastor. Uh, we dunked you in the water. You're now filling some kind of a pool towards ministry. Uh, so we're going to just tell you to go to seminary, and they'll, they'll handle you. They'll, they'll teach you how to, do, how to do church work. We've accomplished our goal. We got, we got you saved. Um, you can tell us that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You may even actually believe that. Uh, you'll get to go to heaven. I certainly did not want to go to hell, right? And so heaven sounds great. My church did a decent job of giving me an understanding of what's known as the doctrine of justification, which we talked about last week, the doctrine in which sinners can be forgiven, sinners can be made right. They gave me a really good doctrine to die with. I had a hope for a secured eternity, but due to my lack of discipleship at the time, they really failed to show me that the doctrine of justification means, means more than just having my eternity secure. I knew I had salvation, but that didn't motivate much else in me. But because of the fact that Christ Jesus went to the cross, And purchased me through his blood, which has then declared me not guilty before God the Father. I now have a doctrine that I get to live by. Because I've been made right with God through Christ. I now get to live for Christ. The doctrine of justification. It's the doctrine that says faith in Christ alone, by Christ's grace alone, says, I am saved for eternity, and I have a life today and a hope for an eternity. It's not the end of the Christian life. The doctrine of justification is not the end of the Christian life. It is the doctrine for all of the Christian life. Tony Morita says, we become righteous before God through faith in Christ, and that faith is then expressed in radical obedience to Christ. So again, I just want to call you to consider that this morning and consider your own life again this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus, 
Are you living in light of your justification? Are you living in light of the fact that because of the cross and resurrection, you have been made right by a perfect, sinless Savior? Or are you still trying to earn God's love? Are you trying to do just enough for God to love you? Christian, I just invite you to rest in your identity as a beloved child of God. If you claim to be a Christian, are you living like God is required to forgive you all the while continuing to live the way that you want to live? Just invite all of you this morning. Would you consider the great sacrifice of Jesus to you? This text has something for all of us this morning. So let's pray and dive in. Lord Jesus, we love you. Lord, thank you that by the cross that we can rest assured that we are in Christ. We have our eternity secure. Our faith has been dearly bought. Lord, but I pray that that just doesn't give us fire insurance, Lord, that that just that doctrine doesn't just keep us out of hell, Lord, but that changes the way we live today as we moment by moment try to rest in you for faith and dependency through the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, I just pray that you would remind sons and daughters of you in here this morning of your goodness to them. Lord, impress on our hearts that If we are in you before anything else, we are in you, sons and daughters of the Most High. Lord, that the gospel is our identity, that we've been set free. Church, if you're willing, I'd ask that you'd pray for yourself, that the Lord would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed, and that the Lord would bring conviction where conviction is needed. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. All right, so just by way of reminder, the first two chapters of Galatians are Paul's autobiography. That's what we've been walking through the last several weeks. He has been defending his apostolic ministry, and he's been defending the gospel against these false teachers who have been trying to add to the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the apostles. Paul's defense has been specifically, very specific in regards to his defense of the gospel and very general in terms of his apostolic ministry. But here in chapter 3, We see the beginning of a shift that's taking place where this argument is going from more, I'm Paul, an apostle, here's the gospel, to more of some theological arguments from Paul. And Paul makes this super personal right from the beginning of chapter 3. Here he offers this rebuke. He says, foolish Galatians. The modern day equivalent based on the Greek language here is you guys are being so dumb. 
You idiotic idiots, is how the text reads. Um, Paul says, surely there has to be something going on with you for you to act this dumb. Maybe you're under some kind of a spell, some kind of witchcraft. Paul follows up his rebuke by mentioning their eyes. One commentator says that the ancients believed that enchantment comes through the window of the eye. So like you look at something evil and then you get the evil eye. So Paul is telling them, you have taken your eyes off of Christ. And what they need now is not better practices. They don't need to do. They don't need to earn. Paul is saying you need to look at the cross. It was before your eyes that, that Jesus was crucified. They need to look back at the cross of Christ and remember that Jesus Christ, by the cross and by the resurrection, is the author and perfecter of faith. Sinners, the cross and the resurrection gives you your pardon if you receive God's forgiveness by faith in Christ. This is the gospel message. It begins with Jesus. Jesus Christ, the God-man, one person in two natures, came to earth and lived a perfect, sinless life. The life you and I were expected to live but couldn't and wouldn't, and God became a man to save sinners. Jesus' sacrifice of himself on the cross was accepted by God because Jesus was being, while being fully God and fully man, he was able to enter into our situation being like us, yet without sin. And he was able to suffer for sins. Jesus endured the just punishment from God against the sins of the world. Jesus then living in perfect obedience to God for us. And because of his perfection, his sacrifice on the cross for the pardon and forgiveness of sins is total and sufficient. And praise be to God that he has accepted Jesus' sacrifice. Paul says, remember this, Jesus. The language that Paul uses here says, not that they remember Christ as crucified, but the literal, literal reading of this text in Greek is that Christ has been portrayed as having been crucified. That's a subtle difference, but it's important. Um, this is what's known in the Greek as the perfect tense. In this, it's the same language that Paul uses in chapter 2 when he says he has been crucified with Christ. This is important because it communicates in the perfect tense, it communicates that an event that has happened in the past has significance in the present and into the future. It is never-ending significance. So what that means for us then is this. The crucifixion of Jesus is a historical event. Yes? But there is so much more to it than it just being a historical event. Jesus Christ was crucified once and for all. Jesus gave himself for our redemption, which was our greatest need because of our sinful rebellion against God, and that sin demanded the death of the rebels. 
And God is just in his wrath against our sin. And Jesus paid for it through his death. And God has accepted Jesus as sufficient. His sacrifice is sufficient in total for the payment against sin. At his death, Jesus was buried and raised to life three days later, defeating sin and death on our behalf. So Paul and the apostles and the witness of, the history of, the testimony of, the confession of, the Christian church is not that we worship a dead Jesus, but a resurrected Savior. Because Jesus is God and is resurrected and has ascended and is reigning, we know that he is able to grant forgiveness to all of those who accept his sacrifice against sin by faith in him. So the cross is significance. The cross has significance for the moment that we are saved, for the moment that we came to faith in Christ, because at that moment we are declared right before God, and it's significant moving forward forever in perpetuity because we get to remain in our justified state before God because he has forgiven us. We get to remain in our justification. We get to remain in our right standing before God forever and ever and ever. Amen. The cross is significant, not just for our past, but also for our present if you're feeling guilty in here, the cross is significant for you right just now. And it's also significant to provide your pardon for future sins. We have been bought with a price. And Paul is calling us back to this. Paul is calling us back to this great truth of a crucified and resurrected and a merciful and kind God. Riken is one of the commentators I've been reading for this series. Riken says what the Galatians needed, and honestly what we need all the time, is a reminder that on the cross, Jesus did everything necessary for salvation. Jesus Christ is our all-sufficient Savior. Therefore, our faith in him is the only and all-sufficient way to be justified before God. And since Jesus is the only and all-sufficient Savior, it would be totally senseless to try to add anything to what he did on the cross. So Paul starts by calling them back, and he continues to do so by way of some rhetorical questions. Verses 2 through 5. Paul says, let me ask you only this. And then he asked four questions. <laughs> Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works or the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? All of these questions basically have the same thrust. Did you receive salvation? Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law, by rule following, by morality? Or did you receive this salvation by faith? 
If they were in fact Christians, if they were in fact believers in Jesus, which Paul is operating from this assumption that they are, then they receive the Holy Spirit when they receive Christ by faith. Paul is reminding us then of the triune nature of God. There is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Paul is telling us that all three people, all three persons of the Godhead are involved in salvation. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior, and after the ascension of Jesus, Father and Son send the Spirit to call sinners to salvation. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that enables us to believe in Jesus by the faith given to us. We can't receive him by works. We can only receive the Spirit into our hearts by faith. If it's by works, then we have to do something. We must obey fully and completely and perfectly, and we just can't. We want to know where the line is so we can walk right up to it and do just enough. Man, if this is you, I'd be willing to bet that you're looking at the people around you and think, I'm not as bad as him. I haven't done that. So I bet I'm okay. But here's the danger in that thinking. Our standard is not in us. Our standard is not in other people. Our standard is the perfect, sinless life of Jesus. If you aren't perfect, then you can't, then you can't ever do enough. You need the Spirit's work to show you your need. The Holy Spirit enables us to believe in Jesus. Because really, when you consider the depths of your sin, your heart does not choose Jesus. Your heart doesn't want Jesus. Everything in you wants to rebel against God and is calling on your life. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you have faith in Christ, it is completely a work of the Holy Spirit in your heart on your behalf. A gift from God. Faith in Jesus given to us by the Spirit makes us righteous before God the Father. So if I could just for a quick second take a brief theological aside here. Um, we receive the Holy Spirit the moment we are saved in Christ. The moment of salvation, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit for all eternity, and we receive the spiritual gifts. You can find lists of those in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Ephesians 4. Some faith traditions teach that there is what's known as a second blessing. Um, that we have to receive the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands and that the, we get this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, and with that comes some more of the miraculous or sign gifts of the Holy Spirit. Specifically, when you receive the Holy Spirit or baptize in the Holy Spirit, then that sign gift is accompanied by speaking in tongues. Um, Scripturally, to my knowledge, there isn't much support for this position. This position would espouse that there is a Christian life with and without the Holy Spirit. Um, and all of the Christian life, from what I read in Scripture, is a life lived by the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit lives inside of you if you are a believer, enabling you to follow Christ by faith in Christ for all of life. When we receive Christ, the moment we receive Christ, we receive the gifts of Christ, his Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, God dwells inside of you. And we receive spiritual gifts as believers when we receive Christ. I like what Riken says about this. He says, The Spirit is not opposed to sound doctrine. Indeed, the two belong so closely together that we cannot live by the Spirit unless we are orthodox in our theology. And a church that does not have sound doctrine does not experience the true blessing of the Holy Spirit. The, the converse is equally true. A church without the Spirit is not as orthodox as it thinks it is. So I don't want to sensationalize or polarize or really even debate. We're going to walk in the Spirit, live by the Spirit um, for all of life. There will be some more discussion on that in future sermons, but that's where I'm going to leave that for right now. Um, back to the text. Paul moves from these rhetorical questions to giving the Galatians a real-life example in, in the person of Abraham. So let's pick it up in verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of the faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, you know the Bible is our authority, and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of the faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So let's just summarize Abraham real quick. We're introduced to Abram in Genesis 12. God would later change his name to Abraham. We see God show up to this pagan man, Abraham, and God tells Abram, I'm going to use those interchangeably. They're the same guy. I'm going to try to say Abraham from now on. God tells Abraham, leave your homeland, leave your family like your father's family, and go to a land, take your wife, go to a land that I will show you. And Abraham just went, packed his things, and left. In Genesis 15, God shows back up to Abraham and says, Abraham, I will bless you. I plan to make you a great nation, and your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. The thing about Abraham was he was 100 years old, and his wife was 90, and they had zero kids. That's a problem. And in all of this, Abraham believed by faith, not perfectly, always, or really ever, but he did trust God. Through him, God says, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Specifically, through one of the offspring, will all the nations of the earth be blessed. God makes a covenant, a binding promise with Abraham, and this is significant in the ancient times. So when two parties come together to make a covenant, they would take usually a bull and they would chop it into two pieces and they would place the, the, both sides on equal parts, and the, the promising, agreeing parties would walk between the animal. Um, they were communicating that if you break the terms of this covenant, you're going to be like this animal. God makes a covenant with Abraham, and it's different. 
God takes the animal, God splits the animal in two, and God walked through it. Abraham did not walk through this. Why? Because God knew that Abraham couldn't uphold his end of the deal. God had to do it for him. God has, is showing himself to be merciful and patient by enacting this covenant. Abraham believed that God was a promise-keeping God. Was Abraham perfect? No. Was his faith always perfect? Absolutely not. We see through his story, Abraham is like a serial liar and sometimes a coward, and sometimes he takes matters into his own hands rather than trusting God fully. And yet, even in spite of this, he trusted God by faith. There is forgiveness there. Be encouraged. Because of his faith, he was obedient to God. And one of his offsprings would, offspring, singular, one of his offspring would bring ultimate healing and salvation. Jesus Christ is a literal physical descendant from the line of Abraham. God has kept his promise. And because of this, Father Abraham had many sons. So let's all praise the Lord. We praise the Lord because our God is a covenant-keeping God. God has kept his promise. Abraham received the blessing of God, not based on any merit found in him, but simply because God is gracious. God is gracious. There's nothing in Abraham that merited this grace. It's simply the unmerited favor of God on Abraham's life. It is not by our morality, it is not by our behavior, it is not by our religious devotion, it is simply by grace. The unmerited favor of God given to us through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross given to us for the forgiveness of our sins. It is grace through faith in Christ alone that God accepts. And so Paul ends this section Verse 10, he says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law and do them. You see, that's the problem with the law. It's the problem with it. Without the cross of Jesus purchasing our pardon and our forgiveness, we're under a curse. Because God is just in his judgment against sin. The law is good. The law is perfect as it comes from God, and in its perfection, it demands perfect obedience. And we just don't measure up. We don't measure up. You can never measure up. Jews and Gentiles alike are condemned under the law because of our sinful disobedience. It's not just our behavior that's a problem. You see, the gospel is more than just like behavior modification. It's not just our behavior. It's your heart. Your heart is the problem. Our sin nature is our problem. We are the problem. The uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism. I was waiting, dude. I set you up. 
Can, I, can we run that back? Okay. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, thank you, says, what does every sin deserve? Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse both in this life and the one to come. We're the problem. The demands of the law put us under a curse because we can't keep them. Look at verses 11 and 12. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. If you want to be righteous, if you want to be declared justified, if you want to be declared right before a just and righteous God, it can't come through the law because the law is not a faith. Part of the reason God gave the law is to introduce his standard of perfection and holiness for us. And, and this is a really important and, it's to show us how bad we really are. It's to show us how broken we really are. It's to show us how needy we really are. Because the implications are this. If we could keep it, if we could keep the law, the law could in fact save us and bless us. The law, though, is life by doing. And you just cannot do enough. Even in our doings, even in our good deeds, Think about it just for a second. You do good to somebody else. Even in our good deeds, our motives are so often so selfish. We're not good enough. You're not good enough on your own. And you never can be. No amount of self-help will get you there. We're then not set free from the curse by the law. Rather, we are cursed by the law. That's the bad news. Here's some really good news. The law shows us how bad we really are and how holy God is. We need a Savior, and we get one. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ has redeemed us. In New Testament times, this word for redeemed would be used to talk about redeeming slaves. A person would be sold into slavery in order to pay his or her debts, and the slave would then go to the highest bidder. Sometimes, a person's family would show up at the, at the auction and pay the price or pay the debt, pay the price to purchase redemption for their family member. Jesus paid that price. Jesus paid that price for all who were slaves to their sin, for all who were cursed by their sin. And if you believe what Romans 3.23 says, that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, all of us have sinned, and therefore all of us are slaves to our sin. And Jesus was hanged on that cross to purchase our pardon. In order to pay this price, Jesus endured the cross. Jesus endured our shame as God laid upon him the sins of us all. The physical agony of the cross was no doubt intense, but we should not ever negate the spiritual suffering that Jesus went through. 
as Jesus became the curse for our sins, for the sins of the church, Christ became our curse. And the Father turned his face away from him. And we became the blessed by grace through faith. During this great exchange, our sin was transferred onto Jesus as if he had done it all. And his righteousness was transferred back to us as if we had never sinned. We don't deserve this. But God is pleased to offer us forgiveness for his glory and for his renown, and not based on anything in us. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We, Christians, believers in Jesus, are recipients of this blessed promise that God made to Abraham. We get God. We have the Holy Spirit who indwells inside of us for life devoted to Christ. The love of Christ is wonderful because Christ became our curse. Christ endured the cross. Christ became our curse. He took it all on himself for you and for me because of his great love for us and his obedience to the divine decree that God would reconcile himself back to sinners sinners back to himself. If that doesn't move you to worship, if that doesn't move you to worship, the love of Christ may not be in you. You have been bought with a precious high price. May that move you to worship. God commends Abraham because of his faith. Faith moves us to worship and moves us to obedience. And a lot of us just are not obedient to the Lord. Here's what Tony Marita says. We often don't live lives marked by radical obedience to the Lord because we don't have faith. People who are saved by grace alone through faith alone don't sit back and indulge in sin and the ways of the world like everyone else. Why? Because they believe God. They're not only saved by grace through faith, but they also live by grace through faith. They risk everything because they know that God is good, that he is sufficient, and that he satisfies. When we come to faith in God, we don't just get a way out of hell. But we get Jesus. We get the Holy Spirit who empowers us to follow God fully. If you are in Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus, by faith and by repentance of sin, you have been made right by God. But that also means your life is no longer your own. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh or in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This isn't a one-time thing. We don't live a spirit-filled life for just a few minutes. Like when we're walking down the aisle and praying with the pastor. We don't live a spirit-filled life when it's convenient for us. When you are in Christ, you are a new creation, and the Holy Spirit is inside of you. 
You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, and he is pleased with you, and he is also pleased to use you. We have been given Christ's righteousness, and now we have a missional mandate to take the gospel to the nations. We have been given a missional mandate to make disciples and to teach and to train our kids. We have been given a mandate to serve others and to serve the church, not out of obligation, but out of delight in what Christ has done for us. We, Christians, the formerly hellbound people of this earth, can now in bold confidence go and love other hellbound people and proclaim the excellencies of Jesus to them. You have a story to tell. Christ became your curse. And some of you need to hear this. Christ became your curse. And therefore, there is no performance-based Christianity. If you're in Christ, you began by faith. And you continue by faith. You continue by faith in a great God who loves you and gave himself for you. Christian, are you resting in this truth that there is no performance-based Christianity that God is pleased with you in spite of you. He doesn't simply just tolerate you. He's actually pleased with you and delights in you. He's not your dad in that sense. He is your great father, your perfect father. Christian, because you've been justified, because you've been made right, Christ is pleased with you. But you don't just get to sit back and coast until you die or until Christ returns. You've been called into something great. You're in the family business now. Christ gave you a mandate at his ascension to make disciples. So who are you discipling? By the power of the Holy Spirit, who are you linking arms with and running towards Jesus with together? Christ invites us to rest in him through faith and dependency. Christ doesn't call us to laziness with his name attached to it. Church, we've asked you to pray for your unbelieving friends and family members, so are you even doing that? There's cards on the back if you need help like to write it down so you can see it. You've been called into life and life abundantly, so pursue Christ and pursue service to Christ, and pursue personal holiness in the way that Jesus has pursued you. Because you've been so dearly bought. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, I want to tell you this. You can't ever do enough on your own. Jesus has paid it all. Now we get to surrender to him. We surrender our very existences to love and to serve and to follow him fully. God in love has given us himself. Jesus, the God-man, stepped out of heavenly perfection and dwelt among us and died for us. Christ offers you grace. 
the unmerited, undeserved favor, and Christ offers you mercy and forgiveness at the cross. Knowing every sin you'd commit, past, present, and future sins, Jesus went to the cross and is pleased to bid you come, come to me and receive forgiveness. Jesus made a way for you, sinner, to be reconciled back to God. There's no guilt there's no shame, there's no fear, there's no condemnation in the arms of Jesus. He loves you simply because he wants to love you and simply because he is good and kind and gracious and generous and he sees you right where you're at and he says, come as you are. And you may be sitting there saying, you have no idea what I've done. I'm like, yeah, I don't. But Jesus does and still went to the cross. There's mercy, and there's grace, and there's forgiveness from Jesus. Jesus is wanting to forgive you, so receive his forgiveness. All of us, believers and unbelievers, I want to invite you right now to pray that the Lord would tell you who he is and remind you who he is and who you are in him. If you're not a believer, I'd just ask that you'd pray that the Lord would reveal himself to you and show you your need for him. Let's all just rest and receive his forgiveness to us this morning. Let's pray.